Hello, everybody. It's Leslie Jane Seymour, and I'm here with Reinvent Yourself. And what I love about our discussion today with Donna Rubin is that we are going to discuss a problem a lot of people have when it comes to reinvention, which is a lot of you come out of intellectual fields where you have, you don't know how to lay bricks or cut wood, um, but it's more intellectual uh, gathering, sorting, um, putting things together with your brain that you know. That's true for a lot of us in marketing and in journalism. And one of the big questions is when those jobs dry up, how do you reinvent yourself using those skills that you have and have cultivated for so long? And is there a market for those skills? So what I love about Donna Rubin, who has this fabulous website called speakingwhilefemale.co, um, is that she is a former journalist and speechwriter uh, who has figured out how to monetize something of an intellectual interest to herself. And that interest happens to be that she was writing speeches for many, many um, people at corporations and everything. She was a journalist first. And she discovered that there weren't a lot of speeches by women out there, or she couldn't find them in the books that she was looking at. She had all these volumes of greatest speeches in history and all this stuff. And she was trying to find speeches that would inspire some of her female clients. And she couldn't find them. They were all men in these books. And she said she has over a hundred of those books and they're all compendiums and they're all about guys. And she was saying, wow, where are the women's speeches in all of this? Did women not speak? And how do women today become good speakers if they have no role models of how women spoke in the past? So she started digging in and, and doing research because that's what her brain tells her to do. And she discovered, indeed, there are thousands of women's speeches um, out there. Women were speaking. They were just ignored. Surprise, surprise. Um, and they were ignored for many different reasons and not considered to be valuable for many different reasons, which you'll hear in the podcast. And she decided that it was time to bring those voices out. And she did her research. She created her site. And then she made this her business. She's so passionate about it. She says she gets up at three in the morning and, and digs around on sites looking for women's voices. And, you know, it's become its own little archive. And she now goes around to corporations and to um, give, you know, conferences talking about why, a, why women's voices need to be included in our history, why those are important in terms of inspiration and point of view and, um, showing that there was another half of the world, even if these people were speaking about things that had to do with the home and were considered therefore less valuable. Um, but of course they weren't. Um, and she's actually figured out how to use that as a leverage point to make herself an expert and then push her business off of that. And so I think it's a wonderful archetype of reinvention that we don't get a lot of. And uh, I hope you'll enjoying, be enjoying hearing me speak with Donna Rubin. 
So Donna, how are you today? I'm so glad that you're here with us and so glad that we get to talk about women's voices. Thank you for inviting me. I'm really happy to be here, Leslie. So let's start with, because this is all about reinvention, let's start with your project and how you got led there. Because you really, it was just personal noticing, isn't, isn't that correct? It is noticing, that's true, but it came out of a, a series of events. Um, I, I'm really on my third act, I would say. I started as a journalist, uh, which created, which fed on or was fueled by tremendous curiosity about the world. And from journalism, I went into speech writing and uh, writing for other people, writing op-eds, articles. And out of that experience came my awareness, noticing, as you put it, that women's voices were not represented in the marketplace. What kind of speeches did you write? Would yeah, talk would a little market. bit about that. I wrote speeches for uh, for executives, for leaders of, of nonprofits and organizations and some individuals. They were speeches that were given at conferences, at even at, at commencement addresses, stadium size events, small events, all kinds of events where people needed to feel, individuals needed to feel more confident about their words and feel that they were prepared when they stood up in front of an audience. And was it something that happened when you were writing for women versus men that made you take notice of the lack of women's speeches out there? Were you doing research? How did it, how did it evolve? No, that, no, not exactly like that, but it was something that I noticed. It was that after some years of going to events like conferences and writing op-eds and, and out of my journalism experience, of course, and my journalism mentality, reading the papers every day and noticing that women's voices were not represented in anything like the proportion that men's voices were. Out of that experience, I started to shift my focus on helping women get their ideas and expertise into the world. Um, there was one thing that happened that was not the turning point, but it was not the catalyst, but it added to my thinking, my mentality, which is that some years ago, I think it was maybe four or five years ago, there was a flurry of articles in late January about Davos, the World Economic Forum in Switzerland. And they were, the articles were about the fact that there were so few women representatives uh, at Davos sharing their ideas and expertise and knowledge. And they were celebrating or noting the fact that they had increased the number of women, the percentage of women's participation to something like from 15 to 17%. And this was a big deal. And I read that and I just thought, there's something seriously wrong about that. If this is an accomplishment that women have reached, I think 17%, because it's at venues like that where world leaders get together and determine these are our values as a society, as a world. This is what we care about. This is where we're going to contribute our resources. And women's expertise and knowledge and experience desperately need to be included in the mix. And I remember that was a real... Uh, it influenced my thinking. It was not a turning point, but it, it, it really reinforced my thinking that there was seriously, seriously a lot of work to be done in this area. Now, when you were researching speeches for the other people, did you start to notice that 
there were very few speeches by women that were even represented? I have to be honest and say I really didn't notice that. I think it was just a case of this is the world as it is. It didn't really enter my consciousness until, like I said, I started going to conferences and seeing mostly men on the podium and reading the op-ed pages and seeing mostly male voices represented. And then, of course, society started to change. We started to look at the, uh, things like um, literary criticism and music criticism. And we started to realize that it's men's voices that determine, that shape our knowledge of the world and the way we understand the world. I just started to get really, really frustrated. And then one day, I, I had been with a client who was talking, as so many women do, about her lack of confidence on the podium. I don't like to speak. I don't like my voice. I don't have a lot to say. I'm not an expert. You know, you know, all these things that women so often, not all women, but so many women say about the public speaking experience. And I remember wanting to give this woman a few examples of women's speeches as inspiration. And I was, I remember the moment I was actually sitting in my bed in my bedroom and I looked across the room at my bookshelf where I had a few examples. I had a few book, uh, books on collections, speech anthologies. And I got up and I actually got out of bed, went across the room, picked up those volumes and started flipping through them. And I thought my head was going to explode because it was immediately obvious that something I had never really noticed before, which was that almost all the speeches in those volumes were by men. And that's where I thought something is really, really wrong. And so what was your next step after that? I started buying speech anthologies. I bought a few and I bought a few more and I bought a few more. I went on Amazon. Sometimes I went to uh, a Libris or other sources. Some of them I got from the library through interlibrary loan. And I started counting up the number of speeches by women and the number of speeches by men in all these volumes. And yes, I was obsessed or another way to say it would be determined. I now have about 102, 103 volumes of speech anthologies. And what I have shown is that almost none of them represent women's voices in history. These are books with titles like Greatest Speeches in History, the world's most important speeches, speeches that have changed the world, and women's voices were not there. The next thing I did was I set up a website. That was December of 2018, and I just started loading women's speeches on it. More and more and more and more speeches, because I wanted to make a point, which is that women have not been silent in history. We have used our voices, the collective we, meaning women, throughout history, speaking on every topic, every possible topic under the sun. And so now I have a website with 1,800 plus, more than 1,800 speeches by women across history, demonstrating that women's voices have been present and that we have helped to change the world. And it's, it's time that we recognized it and valued it and appreciated it. So what the heck was going on? First of all, what's the name of the website so everybody can come find it and be inspired? Speakingwhilefemale.co. I love that. So what the heck was going on? Did you then launch research into that? I think what was going on is a mix of 
you mean in terms of why women's voices are not in these anthologies? Yes. I think it's a mix of um, blinds being blind and also um, lazy. I think when you ask somebody who gave the greatest speeches in history, they're going to say, starting, you know, from the 19th century, they'll start, well, they're even starting in the ancient world. They'll talk about Cicero. They'll talk about moving on up into the 19th century. They'll talk about Lord Asquith and Gladstone. They'll talk about Lincoln and uh, FDR and MLK, all great orators, all great speakers, but they're not the only ones. I really have come to believe that archetypes matter enormously in the way we process information. And historically, our archetypes, the archetype of a powerful speaker in our culture is a man. And we need to change that and broaden that image so that when we think of a powerful speaker, we also think of a woman. So where the hell did you find these speeches? Were they always there? It's just that people accepted this one point of view and they never even looked for the women's speeches? Were they, or did you have to really dig them out? I remember the most, I don't know if you read the book, um, Cleopatra by Stacey Schiff, but mm -hmm. one of the most interesting things about the book was that she pointed out that all the stories that we knew about Cleopatra had come from men because they were the writers at the time. All the writer, Roman writers that wrote about her were men. So of course they had this male point of view. And obviously that's the same thing that's happening here with speeches. I think that's true, Leslie, but I, that is true. And I'll go back and answer your other question, but I do want to make one point, which is that another reason why women's speech, women's oratory rhetoric, however you want to call it, has not been valued is because women have spoken out of their own experience. And the things that were traditionally considered women's experience were not valued by people who held power. For example, women spoke about household, they spoke about maternity, they spoke about domestic issues, they spoke about um, child rearing, they spoke, and also into the 19th century as the reform uh, movement uh, uh, sped up, women talked about prison reform, they talked about the kindergarten movement. All of these things were considered the female realm, the female sphere, but there is not a man today as we speak in 2020 who does not want his kids to go to kindergarten every man cares about kindergarten but previously men did not care about kindergarten if a woman spoke about kindergarten they thought it was not important um, but to go back to your other question where was this information all along it's a kind of a paradox two opposite things are true at the same time i do have to, i do have to dig for the information but the information is all there it's all there. And one thing that has made it tremendously e easier to find is the, is the internet. Of course, every day there's more and more information loaded on the internet. And also, I think when Google, the, the Gutenberg project, the book project, when they digitized all of that, those books and material, it opened up this tremendous um, world of material. So if you know about a woman reformer, you know about a woman who, who spoke, you can dig, sometimes it takes hours, sometimes it takes a few days, but you can dig generally and find material on her speeches, even excerpts online. That's amazing. 
listening to you talk about the uh, the women's stuff idea, what's so interesting about that is that was exactly what happened when I was running women's magazines, was that everybody suggested that it was women's stuff if we wrote about it when I was running Mary Claire. And then when a man picked it up and put it in the New York Times, all the same stories we'd already run in Mary Claire, all about oppression of women around the world, then it was actual journalism. And that went on for years. Right. It's validated. Right. Exactly. And it's interesting. If you think about the word value, validated, it gets validity because someone in power confers that validity onto it. And as more women move into positions of power, then women's subjects will naturally over the, I believe over the course of time, get gain that validation, but we need more women's voices in the public sphere, in the so-called marketplace of idea in order for that to happen. Do you find that currently women's speeches and talks, have you done any look at, are we currently being presented the same amount of times as men or is it only historically that I mean have we kind of evened out if you look at I don't know if you look at TED talks are women giving as many TED talks as male or do we know I you know I haven't done a um a rigorous analysis of the contemporary speaking world so I'm only speaking of my impressions But the impression I have of TED is that they have worked really hard to get gender balance in their, in the videos that they present to the world. I think TED is doing an excellent job. And I think TED is really, has been responsible for raising public's awareness about the role and importance of public speaking. So I give them tremendous credit. But if you're speaking about other places in our culture, if you're talking about, well, even at Davos, there are still, I, have, I don't go to Davos, but I read about it and learn about it if you're talking about the conference world. If you're talking about the level of local government who speaks at the city council meetings in your community, I'm gonna guess that it's still disproportionately male. It's not a, it's not a guess, it's a certainty. So there are some more enlightened places in our culture, but there's still tremendous opportunity and work to be done. The world, I believe we will make, we will know we've made a big change when it's no surprise in any venue that there happen to be more women speaking than men and no one bats an eye. Yeah, I was, um, I think about five years ago, a woman started the project um, of shaming these conferences that would go out there and put all men on the stage and no women. And I had a back out of several conferences that, you know, people solicit you for. And they sounded great. And I would go in and I would look at the keynotes and I would look at how many people were on stage. And if there weren't enough women, usually it was, you know, like 10 or 20% women, that was it. I just would write them a very nice note back and say, hey, you know, this sounds great, but um, why don't you approach me again when you have more women represented and then I will feel more comfortable attending. It still goes on. Right. I think you're talking about, I think you're referring to Gina Glantz. And yes, gen- Gina. Gender. Yeah. Yes. She's, she's great. And she's made a big difference. I will say it is a complicated situation and it, it would merit a whole program, you know, a whole 
another conversation, but I will say, if I could distill it really briefly, conference organizers and venue organizers are responsible for producing, I believe, diversity in their programs. But I know many of these people and have spoken to and done research on this subject, and it is not always easy to get women on the programs. Sometimes they have blindness, sometimes they don't try hard enough, but sometimes they will extend invitations to women and women won't accept the invitations. Why? Well, we go back to what we were originally talking about, which is that women, some women, not all, but some women don't want to put themselves forward. So if they get an invitation, they won't accept it. They're not comfortable. They don't like the way they sound. So generally, I have heard that conference organizers have to invite many more women to fill a women's spot than they do men. Um, but I do want to put a fine point on this argument, maybe not even a fine point, maybe it's a large, broad brush stroke point to say that still in our society, women have more responsibilities than men do in terms of balancing the domestic and the professional spheres. So imagine this scenario, a boss, let's call him a, a, a man or a woman, it doesn't matter, walks down the hall and stops in Joe's office and says, Joe, uh, this opportunity's come up. Can you go to Singapore next week and give a speech? And Joe says, great, I'll do it. I'm on. Or he walks down the hall and says, Susan, can you give the speech? And Susan says, oh, gee, I have to arrange childcare and I have to take care of my in-laws. And it is demonstrably, there's no doubt, harder for women to make space in their world to, to do this kind of thing. So I think there's multiple things at play here. What's interesting, I think, and I would love to hear your point of view on this, um, I think men still respond in a negative way to women's voices in many cases. Do you have any research on that? I was, I'll just use an example of my husband who's a wonderfully liberated guy, smart, intelligent, you know, votes for women all the time. I was in another room with the, you know, the TV playing and he said, oh, he said, who's that? Her voice is just grating on me. Who is that? And it was Elizabeth Warren. And I said, gee, I said, what do you mean by grating? He said, oh, she just sounds so whiny. I said, you got to be kidding. He said, she, said, she sounds just like Hillary. I said, you got to be kidding me. She doesn't sound anything like Hillary. And I don't know where you're getting the whiny from. Like, where is that coming from? And he's a totally liberated, like if he had known who it was, he would never have said that or if he, you know what I mean? But from speaking from his gut, I have a feeling that men, there's something in their gut. Maybe it's their hearing their mothers or something yell at them that it goes back to. Do you know anything about that? Well, I, again, I know from what I've read, I'm not an expert in it. I can certainly... Uh, echo your experience. I've heard many, many people say these things. I do want to call your attention to some recent research. I'm not totally on top of all the details, but you can, your listeners can easily find it. Just about a couple months ago, there was some recent research, I believe it was written about in the New Yorker and elsewhere, about uh, radio frequency technologies in early days of radio that, that tuned the, the frequency so that men's voice, women's voices sound distorted at the higher ranges. So there, there are certainly societal prejudices and there's even technological um, factors involved, but they all are part of a whole constellation of factors that 
that influence the way that we hear and receive information coming from men and women. So interesting. So talk a little bit about how this has affected you as being a reinventor, because how much time are you spending on this project? What do you hope it to become? Is it an archive that you will send off somewhere? You know, how, how do you look at it? I look at it in two ways. One is, if I am, I have reinvented myself and this is what I do. I was hesitant at first and then I just jumped in completely and now I just call myself an advocate for women's speech and voice. This is what I'm doing and this is what I expect to be doing for the rest of my working life because there is so much work to be done and because my interest in it grows and deepens day by day. I am never going to get tired of this topic. My vision for it is that the online resource that I've created, which as I said, has you know, 1800 speeches by women now and will grow and grow. That is only the, really the tip of the iceberg. There are thou really thousands and thousands of, of important, significant speeches by women that, that we need to know about. So I will find a way to ensure that this online resource exists in perpetuity because I want going forward every young woman and girl, every woman, wherever she may be in the world, whether she's in you know, Kansas and Kentucky or Cameroon, to be able to go online and see what a powerful woman sounds like, hear her voice, read her words, in some cases even see her handwriting. I want it to be an inspiration. But if you're talking about the long view, I am a, a student of history, I'm historically minded, and I would say that these, the picture's not gonna completely change in our lifetime. This is a project for our children and our grandchildren to completely change societal attitudes towards women's voices, women's knowledge, and women's attitude. And my feeling about it is that if I can be part of this change and help move it forward, then it's a privilege and work that I, I wanna be doing. Can we, talk, can we talk a little bit about how you fund something like this? Was this a side project while you were working? Did you take a small you know, amount of cash and just start it? Was it a very low entry fee so you could just do it yourself? And, and, yeah. and then how do you monetize? Yeah, so I, um, I will tell you what I did as a case example of what not to do, which is that I didn't have a plan. And I didn't have a plan because I wasn't very business-minded, and I really, it was an evolution for me. I hadn't really conceptualized it as a new business. It evolved and then kind of steam, steamrolled in a way and took over my, my life and my, my preoccupations. And if I were to roll back time and do it over, I would think more seriously about the funding of it. I just started funding it myself with the old work that I was doing as a speechwriter and as a consultant. And then I jumped, at first I stuck my toes in, then I stuck my foot in, then I jumped in completely. And I realized the scope of this project grew and grew and grew and I, and I did not have a, a funding model for it. So don't do it like that. Think more rigorously about how you're gonna make this happen because we all know that in today's hyper noisy world, it takes a lot of effort, it takes a lot of Time and time is money, resources to get your voice into the world, to get 
your platform to the position where people know about you. It takes a lot of effort to brand yourself and to use technology and to get yourself into the world. Now, do you, do you make money going out talking about speeches? Is this your main source of income? Are you retired? How do you look at it? (laughs) Is it a side hustle or? It's not a side hustle though. No. Okay. It's a complete hustle. And the way I make my living is through speaking, leading workshops and consulting. Um, and, and I'm fortunate and excited that there is an appetite for this in corporate America. I focus on corporate America because there's so much work to be done. And let's face it, corporate America has the resources to, to foot the bill. And corporate America increasingly really does care about this. Um, I think from, from women's groups right up through succession planning and uh, hiring and and at the two top levels of corporations, companies realize that developing their female talent is really good for ROI and good for the bottom line. So this is a good time to be in the work of going to corporations and selling yourself that you can go in and help them develop their female talent. And audiences are receptive now to this message. So I am speaking. I also have a public speaking workshop that I give within corporations, the Speak Out Boot Camp. And my goal is to train and to be the um, Dale Carnegie for women's public speaking training, to go into companies and train women to step up, self-advocate, use their voices and speak, whether it's at a conference, on a panel, in a pitch, in a boardroom, in a sales meeting, in an interview. There are, there's no end of opportunities internally within the organization and also externally as a spokesperson, as a brand advocate, to use your voice to advance your own career, but also to advance the message and values of the organization that you work for. For our closing, um, Donna, what kind of other tips or tricks would you give um, to somebody who's trying to start something like this? other than planning financially how to do it, though it sounds like some of these things kind of bite you and you end up backwards into them anyway, and you may not be able to plan. But what else would you tell a good girlfriend like me or someone like me about starting this kind of project? What do you need to know that you didn't know? That's a good question, Leslie. And I have thought a lot about this. I would say that my best thinking is to go to the edge, follow what you're interested in, what you care about, but then take it all the way. Read everything you can on a subject. Talk to all the smart people working in that area. Figure out what the leading edge is and make yourself the expert. Because as we discussed, it is such a noisy, competitive world and you've got to be better than anybody. You need to be the expert in your field. Even if you're a layperson like I am, find an area that no one has made their own and make that your own. And if that means that you're going to exclude other things in, in your life, which it will, I mean, inevitably it will, you know, I am not following every uh, step, the trajectory of the coronavirus as we speak. I'm not following every move in the horse race between the Democratic nomin- you know, candidates because I can't, there's only a certain number of hours in the day, but also because I just, I don't care as much because I am 
totally focused and obsessed with this issue. So that is a result of taking it to the leading edge and applying a laser focus. Um, you know, I used to work for Martha Stewart for a while. I used to write speeches and material for her. And I remember she's a very good role model in some ways. I remember her saying in a lot of ways, she's an excellent role model, but she said that she used to stay up till three and four in the morning, obsessed with reading about furniture. She'd get books on furniture and be studying the, the legs of tables and the finishes of furniture. And it, it does sound a little absurd to those of us who know nothing about 19th century French furniture or Shaker furniture or whatever, but she was obsessed. And just like her, sometimes I, I'm not even a night owl. I'm generally a morning person, but sometimes at three or four in the morning, I'll find myself wide awake, not even wanting to go asleep because I'm on fire with the research that I'm doing. I'm so excited about it. That tells you that you are making yourself into an expert and that's what you need to distinguish yourself in this, in this, in these times and in this marketplace. I love the idea that you can just be this voracious learner and actually turn it into a, I think that is a hallmark of, of who this listener is. We consider ourselves at the Covey uh, lifelong learners. And that's one of the things that distinguishes us from the rest of the world. So you fit right in, girlfriend. <laughs> so thank you, Donna. I love the idea that you can, and I also love the idea, I didn't even think about how Google's archive has opened up the possibility of creating businesses with organizing material. I love that. And that's true because somebody else doesn't have to go and you know, do all this organization, it's right there for them, which is fantastic. So thank you so much. And I'm so glad. And I'm hoping that everybody will come see you and hear you and go to speakingwhilefemale.com. Thank dot, you, Donna. Dot co, Leslie. Dot, dot co. co. Okay. If you write the M, you'll still get there, but dot co. <laughs> much more modern. Anyway, thank you so much, Donna. So appreciate your time. Take thank care. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you all for listening to Reinvent Yourself. I hope you got a new idea about how to use your intellectual capacity to create a business model for yourself. And... If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, please give us some stars and leave a review so others can find us. And if you're listening on the Podbean app, leave, a, leave us a comment on our page to let us know how we're doing and what reinvention topics you want me to cover. For Apple Podcasts, to leave a review and give us stars, because some of you have asked, how do I do that? You can click the Review Yourself, Reinvent Yourself podcast in your library. Scroll to the bottom and click tap to rate or write a review to let us know how you're liking the podcast. If you're in the Podbean app, you can leave a comment by clicking the red comments button on our page and add yours by typing in the box at the bottom of the screen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you enjoy this, I hope you will subscribe and I hope you will tell your friends about Reinvent Yourself. We want to be the source for all of your brand new ideas and for 
the fabulous things you're going to do in your next life. Because as we know, it ain't over till you say it's over. So take care.